We believe that the word of God is inerrant and infallible, which means that it is true in what it says without fault or error, and that it is accurate in what it teaches and proclaims about God. I, however, am neither. And so please don't turn to John 3 this morning, as your bulletin says, but turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 for our passage this morning. Um, We have been studying this wonderful book, this gospel letter, John's gospel to the church. It has been a few weeks as we have had special uh, events with the... um, Uh, Faith Promise Sunday last Sunday, and the ordination service the Sunday prior. But we return to our our faithful friend, John's Gospel, and we pick up where Jesus is interacting with a crowd of followers. Now, this crowd started chasing Jesus, and I think it's fair to say they have been chasing Jesus ever since he performed miracles in Jerusalem. We're we're told... um, that he performed some healing miracles in Jerusalem that got their attention, that led them to find Jesus where we witnessed the miracle of the feeding of 5,000. And ever since then, this crowd has been trying to find him again. Uh, he's had some interactions with the disciples. He's, he's done a few other things, but now they have cornered him. And they've come and said, now, Jesus, we, we want to believe you, We want to listen to you, but you really need to show us something. And their hearts have been revealed in this. What they really want out of Jesus is we want another miracle where we get something from you. That's where we were last time as we began uh, chapter um, or or this section uh, starting in verse 22 where Jesus is rebuking them really for their unwillingness to believe and, and merely their following of him for gain. And so we pick up, we actually pick up this morning at the pinnacle of this text. Uh, I left you off on a a bit of a cliffhanger last time in verse 34, but we pick here, we return here at the peak of Jesus's argument. And I want you to listen very carefully to what Jesus says in verse 35. Um, I will read for us John chapter 6, starting in verse 35, and read to the 40th verse. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please bow with me as we go to him once again in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, these are precious words we hear from our Savior this day. 
They're vitally important for our understanding of our faith. They're vitally important for our understanding of Jesus Christ. They are vitally important for our understanding of how we conduct missions and evangelism. And so, oh Lord, because this text and all of your word, but particularly this text is so vital for us this day, I pray that you would open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts that we might hear, see, and believe. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. In the first psalm, which is my, one of my favorite psalms, we get an analogy. In Psalm 1, we're told about a man. And this man delights in the law of the Lord and meditates upon it day and night. And the lesson here is, it is good to delight in God's word and to reflect upon it frequently and often. And then that man is compared to a tree. Often the Bible uses analogy to help us make sense of, of certain concepts. And the psalmist says this about the man who delights in the word of God. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. This is a healthy tree. This is a firm tree, a tree rooted in the ground, a tree bearing fruit, a tree that does not worry or is not concerned about its needs for all it needs is provided by the Lord. In the same way, we as Christians, this is how we should look at our lives. It is the Lord who places us. It is the Lord who gives us the nutrients. It is the Lord who provides the water. It is the Lord who gives us the sunshine. Interestingly enough, in the Gospel of John, Jesus, he already has started, but will, the sermon of the woman at the well, what does he say? I am living water. He's going to go on to say, I am the light of the world. And he's going to give six other I am's. And then here, of course, I am the bread of life. Do you see how Jesus Christ will end up saying through the gospel of John, much like the tree who needs water, soil, and light, Jesus himself is going to say, I am those things that you need. And so we have to understand, we need to learn, and we need to take in the fact that Jesus provides all that we need, but more than that, Jesus places us where we need to be. The tree does not get to pick where it is planted, but it is wholly dependent upon the Lord. Our text this morning has Jesus talking about these matters Really, you could say our text this morning is talking about salvation and how by trusting in Jesus by faith, we can have assurance that he will care for our needs unto the very end. And so to understand this this morning, I want us to look at three different parts of our passage. I want us to see in verse 35 that whoever comes to Jesus will have life. You can't water a dead tree. Well, you can, but it doesn't do any good. In verses 36 and 37, salvation is secured by the will of God the Father. Salvation is secured by the will of God the Father. 
And then in the, the final verses, Jesus Christ fulfills the will of God the Father. And so what we have here is we have salvation that is anchored, that is created by God the Father and then accomplished by Christ the Son. And so we have this beautiful picture of salvation being upheld, we could also say through the power of the Holy Spirit, by the Trinity. And so we're going to consider our salvation and how it is being upheld by God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But let's begin by this idea that whoever comes to Jesus shall have life. We remember that the crowd has asked for miracle after miracle. When someone multiplies bread and multiplies fish and you have a magnificent dinner before them and you know they're capable of doing it again, the temptation is to follow them around asking them to do it again. Hey, that was neat. Can you do it one more time? I mean, one time is miraculous, but two times would be really miraculous. It's effectively what they're doing here. They're, they're chasing Jesus, asking him to perform. He rebuked them in verse 26. He tells them very clearly, you're only here because I gave you bread. But if we follow chapter 6, verse 31, they ask again. Verse 34, they ask again. And so Jesus in verse 35 says to them in response to this pleading, this, this constant begging, give us more bread. We need more bread. We need more bread. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. What Jesus is saying here, really a summary of, of his entire argument, I am that which you need. You say you want physical bread, but if you eat physical bread tomorrow, you will still be hungry. You will still die. You will still face death. You will still have hardship and difficulty and pain and suffering and loss. But I, myself, being Jesus Christ, I am what you need. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We're talking about eternity here. We're, we're, we're talking about heaven. We're talking about an infinite amount of time with God. And yet these followers, they, they want the physical, they want the immediate, they want the temporary. And Jesus is saying, I want to give you something that's going to last forever. We could say it another way. What Jesus is saying here is, I am salvation. What you need, what you really and truly and deeply need is to be right before God the Father and I am the one who accomplishes that. That's a powerful statement by Jesus, isn't it? That's, that's one when we really think about it, it should cause us to bend the knee, it should cause us to bow our heads, it, it should cause us to respond by, yes, oh Lord, give me that. I want the very thing that I need for life. Give me what I truly long for. And for many of us, we have. For, for many of us, we've had that moment, that season in our life where we realize, God, you're it. You're what I need, and if I don't take a hold of you, I'm in trouble. My life is not worth living if I don't have you. And I, I have to have faith that at the end of this argument, that Jesus will continue past our passage, um, that some of those hearing would have come to this conclusion as well, that they would have heard and believed. 
This is one very powerful aspect of Jesus saying here, I am the bread of life. What Jesus is offering is salvation. And he says, who comes to me will not hunger, who believes in me will not thirst. What he is offering is salvation. But Jesus is also doing something in this text equally as powerful and equally as important. And I don't want us to miss this. Um, this will be a good lead-in. Um, we've got seven I am statements in the book of John. Seven statements by Jesus Christ where he declares who he is. But to understand any of them, we need to go to another passage of Scripture. We actually need to go all the way back in the Old Testament to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. This is a book written recording the state of the people of what would be Israel. They are in Egypt. They are captives. They are being pressed harshly. They are being mistreated. The Lord raises up one to bring salvation, a deliverer, a savior, if you will. His name, of course, is Moses. Moses grew up under Pharaoh being one of the highest in the house. Everything looked great for him and for his life and for his profession, although he saw one day an Egyptian beating a Jew in, in, in anger, he killed the Egyptian. This became evident, this became known, and so he flees for his life. He runs away, he leaves his, his high profession, he, he leaves his lavish home and all of his possessions. And yet in, in Exodus chapter 3, we have an incident. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, priest of Midian. He led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning and yet it was not consumed. He's doing his job as a shepherd and he sees a bush on fire that's not being burnt up. And wisely, Moses said, that's not supposed to happen. Let me go find out what's going on. And as Moses approaches this bush, this fiery bush, the word of the Lord comes to him through it and says, Moses, take off your sandals. You are on holy ground. He didn't realize it, but you are speaking to the Lord. Humble yourself before me. And God tells him, Moses, I have chosen you to be my deliverer. You will go and speak to Pharaoh on behalf of the people of Israel, and you will see them delivered. You will be the reluctant Savior. It's really what God's telling him here. And I say the word reluctant because if you continue in the text, Moses starts complaining, wait, God, I've got a speech impediment. I'm not that good at public speaking. Uh, this is not going to work out. I don't have any power. And God stomps all of his arguments. Well, I'll give you your brother. I'll give you a staff. You're going to use my words. It's okay. And then he, makes, he, he tries one more time. He says, all right, wait now, God, but what are the people of Israel going to say when they come to me and they, and they ask, who are you to speak on our behalf? How do I t let them know that you're the one talking to me and I'm not just making this up? What do we read here in the word of God? Look at verse 13. Moses asked God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers have sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In the Hebrew, Eia, Asher, Eia, I am that which I am. From this word, from the, the um, consonant structure of that phrase, I am that which I am, we derive the divine name of God, Yahweh. I am that which I am. I would be surprised if in any of your Bibles that word is mentioned. The Hebrew people wouldn't speak it. It was so divine. It was so precious to them, they wouldn't even write it. And so in your Bibles, we can find that word when the Lord is capitalized. Often that's how you'll see it denoted in your, in your scriptures. The Lord. You can also see it as the form of Adonai or Elohim. Uh, Hebrew is kind of funny. They didn't write down the vowels. And so think of words only with consonants and how you can change some of those vowels and you can change how the word is spelled. But what does the Lord say here? I am that which I am. I am, not I was, not I will be, but I am. I am present. I am living. I am he. And that was sufficient for the people of Israel. And Moses went forth and declared, I am has sent me. Let's go back to our text. Why is this so important? What does Jesus Christ say here? I am the bread of life. In Greek, ego eimi. I am that which I am. Do you see it? What is Jesus saying here? I am Yahweh. It is probably one of the most powerful things he could have ever said, and also the most blasphemous if it wasn't true. Jesus Christ just said before these people, I am God. And not a God, but I am the God of the Old Testament. Yahweh and I are one. It's a profound statement. It would have shocked the people. They would have fainted. There, there would have been gasps when this was said in front of the people. Because you didn't use that word. You certainly didn't say that about anyone. God was sovereign. His name was sovereign. But Jesus Christ says here, I am. I am the same God as the God of the Old Testament. I am the same God who brought creation into being by the word of my mouth. I am the sustainer of life. I am He. And I know this is often dulled for us as post-New Testament Christians because we, we get this and, this and we get that sense and we understand the unity of God from Genesis to Revelation. But remember, put yourself in the, in the mindset and the idea of the Hebrews. They came to him for miracles and he just said, I'm the divine God. <laughs> you could not have said something more profound and, and, and more all-creating. But what is the... What is the, what is the implication of that what was Jesus saying to them think about it this way if he is God if he is Yahweh Jesus says I am the bread of life he who comes to me will not hunger and will not thirst that means he can do what he says he's going to do really and truly that's what Jesus is saying just as the God of the Old Testament never failed his people so I say to you I will not fail you now 
What I say is anchored, is grounded in the words of creation itself. It is founded upon the holy scriptures. I am he, therefore I can be trusted. And so when Jesus says those who come to me will be saved, he means those who come to me will be saved. And as a proof text, we need to go read the entirety of the Old Testament (laughs) as his foundation and backing. That's his resume. And then after he says that, he continues. We talk about how salvation is brought about by Jesus Christ. It is also secured by the divine will of God. And we find that in our next section. But before he offers it, he he warns them again. He's done this before in this argument. I said to you, you have seen me and yet do not believe. What a hard contrast. Jesus in 35 has revealed himself to be the divine God. Jesus in 36 has said, and y'all still don't get it. And those are two very, they're on different ends of the spectrum, right? I do want you to see how Jesus knows the heart of man here. He's not asking that as a question. He, he didn't say to them, I am the divine God of all creation. Why do you not get it? He said, I am the divine God of all creation and you don't get it. He knows their hearts, revealing his divine sovereignty, like the God of the Old Testament. I know what's in your heart. I know your desires. I know what you're thinking. I know you, for I made you. And yet you don't believe. You do not yet believe. And then verse 37 tells us why. Verse 37 may be the most important verse in this chapter. Why do they not believe? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, I personally don't want to overstate the importance of verse 37, and so I will let Dr. R.C. Sproul do it for me. And I quote, If we could understand the significance of this single verse of Scripture, all of the theological battles over election, divine sovereignty, and human reasonability would vanish. With these words, Jesus taught to those gathered, the crowd and the disciples, remember they're present, that there are a fixed number of people whom the Father has determined will come to the Son. They are a gift from the Father to the Son. Why do these people not come to Jesus? Well, because some of them are not ordained so. They are not elect. And again, quoting R.C. Sproul in his commentary, he says, in the final analysis, the only reason I am a Christian is that the Father wants to honor the Son with and through my life. God the Father from all eternity determined to make salvation certain for those he has determined to give to his Son. God is not a God of accident. God is not a God of chance. But God is a God who is intentional and creates and operates with a divine purpose in mind, whether we can see it or not, whether we like it or not. Now, let me make two points of application in light of this because I I know the tendency when we hear passages like this. 
first. I'm I'm not pulling a, a theological point that I would like to make from a single text. I don't have time to do it, um, but if you want to hear this more thoroughly, you want to hear this in other places of Scripture, um, Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Romans 9, the entire chapter, or my personal favorite, Titus 3, he saved us, not according to works done in us by righteousness, but according to Jesus Christ Himself. Son. The Bible teaches God has a chosen people unto himself. The entirety of the Old Testament, the history of Israel proves God has chosen people for himself throughout history. And that's one of the points I want to make. This is a biblical concept, and it's not one we can ignore because it makes us uncomfortable. But I know that the second argument against a thought like this, well, why do I have to do anything then, Pastor? If there are elect and there are those that are not elect, what does it matter? Why do I evangelize? Why do I pray? Why do any of those things if God's going to do what God wants to do anyway? Well, because of this. The last time I checked, I have yet to find anyone walking on this planet with a tattoo or a sticker or a sign that says, I am elect on it. Not a one. So what does that mean for all of us? That means we preach the gospel to all believing all can come to Christ who believe in him. And here's the beauty of it. Those who do believe will come. We don't have to discriminate. We trust God to take care of those whom God has given to the son. We freely and openly and lovingly share the gospel trusting in his work. It's why I preach. If it was up to me only to preach to the elect, I wouldn't do it because I don't know. I mean, I love you all dearly and I pray that we're all together in heaven and I pray that we're all worshiping our Savior, but I don't know. God does. And so until he either tells me and if he does, I'll let you know or he calls me home. That's how I'm going to preach and that's how we should live our lives as Christians. Secondly, when we hear a passage like this, I don't want you to focus on the fact that there's a specific number of the elect. I'd rather you focus on a different part of this, his argument here. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I'd much rather you hear this. If you are in Christ, your salvation is secured. Why? Because it's already been paid for. God the Father handed to Christ the Son the list of names and said, go and save them. And Christ has and he did. Which means your salvation cannot be lost. Your salvation cannot be taken away. Your salvation cannot be forgotten. You are secured in Christ because Christ has already bought you with his blood. It is guaranteed. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I am more encouraged by this verse than less. Because salvation is not up to me, nor is the salvation of anyone else. My calling specifically, my calling as a minister is to be faithful and to share the hope of the gospel with as many people as possible, knowing whether I do a good job or not, humanly speaking, 
the Lord will use my witness to draw his people to himself or the witness of another that comes into contact with their lives. The burden is not on me as pastor, nor is it on me as Christian to see people that I come in contact with saved. Now, that being said, that's not an excuse for laziness. Consider the anto sluggard. But eternally and divinely speaking, God's will will be accomplished by God. We just get to be a part of the work. And how wonderful is that, that we get to be a part of his work. God uses ordinary means to accomplish his divine purposes. And it is locked in, it is guaranteed because it is ordained by God the Father. But there is a tilting point on this. There there is a contingency here. Everything I said is true if Jesus can do it. That's the fulcrum. If Jesus can accomplish his task, then what has been promised by Scripture is true. And so let's look at our last section and, and, and let's find out, can he do it? We have one of those wonderful words here, for or therefore. Anytime we see it, we need to ask, what is it there for? Jesus answers the question that we need to ask. Well, can he do it? I have come down from heaven, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus' purpose is to bring the elect to the last day that he might raise them up. To put it differently, Jesus' mission is salvation unto the end. And it concludes in verse 40, this is the will of my Father. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him on the last day. Can he do it? Of course he can. Why? Why can I with confidence say Jesus Christ can do it? Because of what he just said in verse 35. I am Yahweh. I am the divine God. And when I say I'm going to do something, I do it. When I make a promise, I keep it. When I set out to accomplish something, nothing stops me. And so look at the promises here. Look at what is, what is told to us in this text. Look at Jesus. I will give them life. I will give them bread and water that never ends. I will raise them up on the last day. And here are those as promises of assurance. Everything hangs on Jesus Christ being able to complete the mission. Not on us. And and I just ask you, where would you this rather be? Would you rather it be God said here, that's great, Jesus Christ came. Now, if you believe by your strength and by your power and by your might, then you are saved. Where do you want the fulcrum? On Jesus or on you? Who's more reliable? Who's more trustworthy? Who's kept more promises? I want it on Jesus every time. I know me. I know me well. I want it on Jesus. For Jesus and Yahweh are one. God does not fail. 
And yet at the same time, we must not forget here. We, we must not look over. In light of that, as wonderful and powerful as that is, we cannot skip over everyone who does what? Looks on the Son and believes in Him. So what is the call to action from our text? Believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Hope in Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Whether you think you're elect or not, whether you think you were chosen or not, believe in him. And here's the beauty of it. When we get to heaven, Jesus is going to correct all of us on something anyway. <laughs> We've all got something wrong in our theology. I'm confident of it. And when we're sitting there and we're talking with Jesus or one of the disciples or one of the prophets, they're going to go, you know, you really, you really didn't understand things this way. But how it works out will be how it was meant to work out. Now, I'm not saying that whole carry under what Jesus take the will, we let go mindset. I'm saying we take the will with confidence knowing that the Lord is directing our path. We're trusting him that he will lead us where we need to be. I want you to go back to where we started. Think of yourself like the tree mentioned in Psalm 1. If you are in Christ, he has planted you exactly where you need to be that you might receive water, that you might receive nutrition, that you might get ample sunshine. What is that for the Christian, the church? What, what is the nutrients? It's the word of God. What is the, the, the water? I mean, we can make a lot of terrible analogies here, but again, it's the word of God. What, what is the, the sunshine that the tree needs? It's the word of God. It is the sacraments. It is prayer. It is fellowship with fellow believers. The means of grace. God has planted you here to receive the means of grace. And by them you will grow into a strong, healthy, mighty tree. You won't have to worry when the storm comes. You won't fear the days of famine or droughts. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. And this passage is offensive on many levels. I'm glad to hear it. Maybe you look at your life and you're not bearing fruit. You feel sick, anemic, and afraid. To you, I will make this plea. Well, I'll let Jesus make it. All who come to me and believe, I will not cast out. That's not Aaron Suber making that offer. It's Jesus Christ. Come to him and you will live. The beautiful thing about trees, they can be replanted. It's kind of a pain to do it, but they can be done. Jesus doesn't mind the work. If you want life, come to Jesus. If you are in Jesus, trust he's got you exactly where he wants you to be. What does he say to the crowd? I am the bread of life. No one that I have bought with my blood will I cast out. I will raise him up on the last day. And then I'll close with this. This is just, I, I love being, of, of thinking about this. Here's the beauty. Look, I love Main Street. I'm learning to like Columbus. This is not heaven. It's not. What does that mean? Jesus hasn't come back yet. Because if he had, that's where we would be. In heaven. With him. And with all of the saints. But until then, that day is coming. Look forward to that as the Christian. That day has yet to come. We can look with eager anticipation and if you're not in Christ, there's still time. 
that day has not yet come. But know this, that day is coming soon. He will come like a thief in the night. Make your heart prepared today. Don't wait. Come to the one who offers bread and water that you may live. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, again, this is an important passage. It, it's a tough passage, Lord. We are wrestling with your sovereignty and, and, and our agency, and we are wrestling with salvation and our eternal state. And, and while it's important to have debates and discussions on some of these topics, Lord, may we not miss the salvation of your people has been bought by the Son ordained by the Father, bought by the Son, and worked out through the Spirit. So may we all have the comfort and confidence of knowing that we are in you. And if there be any people here today that do not yet know you, may this passage weigh over them. May it cause them to see their sin and their need of a Savior. And may they find that Savior in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We ask that you use it to transform our lives and our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen.